there's a frightening number of women and men who have been sexually or physically assaulted at some point in their lives. They're scarred for life, and all too often, they're silent in their suffering. But there's no need for silence or shame. How do you climb out of that hole? That's what we're here to talk about today with a woman who suffered three different attacks by three different men at three different life stages. I'm Sarah Heiner, and this is the Bottom Line Advocator Podcast. And don't forget at the end to rate and review so that others can hear about it and know about the great information that we provide. I'm Sarah Heiner, president of Bottom Line Inc., the number one provider of expert-sourced, expert-vetted, expert advice that empowers your life. And I'm moved today to be talking to Christine Restino, author of All the Silent Spaces, a story of overcoming acute trauma. Christine was the victim of sexual and physical assault, not once, not twice, but three different times, during three different life stages and by three different men in her life. Through the process of healing from her last attack, she found a new power and voice that she shared in the hopes of helping anyone who's been a victim of any kind of abuse. All the Silent Spaces is a fabulous book and it's available on Amazon and wherever books are sold. And you can learn more about Christine and her book at christinerestino.com. So welcome, Christine. Thank you for sharing your story today. You're so welcome. Thank you for having me. So let's start out, and if you can, just give a brief overview of what happened to you, these three different stages, so people understand what you've dealt with, the different things you've been through. Absolutely. So I was attacked in 2007 in front of my three- and five-year-old children, and I was really confused about the attack, and it took me it took me by surprise, but it was a very public moment for me. It was in front of people in a parking lot at a store. Uh, my children witnessed it, and they were having a really hard time coping. And it set me off on an investigation to understand a lot of things about the world that I didn't really understand. And during that inter- investigation, I started writing down stories. Um, basically, they were true stories. They were about difficult conversations that I was having with my community around the topic of violence. So what I would do was write those stories down, then I would hand hand them to the person who I had the conversation with. They would tell me I got it right or I didn't, I, you know, you didn't understand anything or yep, you've got it. And then I would either write a new piece uh, or add to the piece. And it was a way for me to cope with what had happened to me. I kept thinking, if I can learn something from this experience, it won't be for nothing. Well, got it. So let me, I just want to back up a little bit because the molestation was the last time or the attack was the last time and there there actually was no sexual assault. That was literally a mugging in the parking lot, right? And what were, it was, say that again. Oh, yes, it it was, it was, it was a physical attack. Right. And the, but not a sexual attack. And what were the first two? I just wanted people to, to understand the, perspective on your three different assaults just so they know the background on your story so first assault was okay so so this the the attack in the parking lot got me to investigate the first two so the first one was uh molestation when i was probably eight or nine although i don't know my exact age for sure and it was by a person everyone in my family loved uh, and I kept that quiet for years into my 40s. I think I told one uh, or two close friends. And then when I was 21, I was at a party and I got a ride home from somebody I didn't know who didn't take me home. Instead, he took me to a secluded place and raped me. And then the final event was the event in front of my children, the parking lot attack. Now, and so... You said that deal, once this third one happened, it kind of opened your eyes to confronting the other two. What had you done with that, the first two? Had you just stuffed them inside and forgotten about them? I don't know how you could forget it, but like where, where were they living for 40 years? Um, well, they, you never forget them. And, and for me, I thought about them, but I just kept saying, oh, they've barely affected me and I'm a strong woman. I was pretty successful in my life. I got a PhD, I got a job in academia teaching Italian and I just pretty much ignored them. 
so I, I kept thinking, oh, they didn't affect me at all. Uh, during 40 years, and I think this happens to a lot of survivors, we go on. It's the only thing we can do. And so went on, did what I felt like I needed to do in my life, had two children. Uh, before that, I, I married my husband. And I felt as though I had a pretty good life. However, I, I wasn't crazy about myself. I had a fairly low self-esteem. I never listened to myself. I, I, I didn't even know what I thought in any given situation. I just advocated for uh, people getting along and mediated a lot. So, you know, lived a, a life, uh, lived the only life I could live at that time. I wasn't ready to talk about these things. I wasn't ready to look at them. And so I did what I needed to do to move move forward in my life. It wasn't until the, the third attack when, and, and this was over a 10-year process, when I finally started looking at the other two events and acknowledging how much they actually did affect or had affected my life. So I'm going to ask you the question that I hate most when interviewers ask people after they're describing a traumatic incident, how did you feel after the the mugging? And I'm asking that intentionally because there was something that that shifted in you and stirred in you after that. So what? there you were on the ground and bleeding and attacked and your kids and scared. Like, what was going through your mind, your heart in the moments and days and weeks after that? Mm-hmm. It was so confusing during because my children were low to the ground in this uh, princess cart. And in fact, we had gone outside to get the princess cart. We had been inside the store and went out to find the cart that they wanted so that they could, I, I don't know, they could be in those designer kitty cards. Yep. And, yeah, so we're, we're out there. The kids are low to the ground, and I'm pushing the cart, and we get close to this man on a bench who stands up, walks towards us. And I'm, we're stuck on the curb, and I thought he was trying to help me. Instead, he punched me in the face. And so I really was confused. I had no idea what was going on. Uh, my purse was pulling at my my arm. I didn't get what was happening even there. It wasn't until I was lying on the ground and I looked up and saw him pulling at my my bag. And then I let go of it. And um, actually, I called him a prick. I don't know if I can say that on a, a you can say video, it. but okay. <laughs> you just and, did. And then, <laughs> and then he left. And that was the moment when I realized what was ha- what had happened. And then I just heard this faint crying, uh, wasn't sure who was crying. And then I looked up and realized it was my daughter. And my daughter and son were inches away from my face because they were so close to the ground. And just having them bear witness to it and seeing the, the horror on their face changed everything because I realized these kids are going to need some help. This isn't something that I can just ignore, brush under the rug, pretend like it didn't happen. I actually need to address this. And at the same time, there was a woman who came up and asked me if I was okay. And I said, it's okay, I'm okay. And she looked me right in the eyes and she said, it's not okay, and you're not okay. I saw it. And those two things really kind of pushed me into action, made me realize that none of this was okay. And that's what started me on this long investigation of violence, as, as, as well as many other things. You know, I didn't know how to have difficult conversations. I decided I would have them because I had nothing to lose. And I, I had everything to gain. I, I didn't want this experience to be in vain. But, well, you know, days, hours, weeks after this event, I felt unsettled. I became depressed. I had to take a leave of absence after about a semester of, of um, university because my family was really falling apart. My, my son couldn't sleep. My daughter was crying every night and drawing pictures of me in ambulances and lying on the ground bleeding. My husband was stressed out. You know, it, and, and I was terrified of being attacked again. So I was afraid of, of people in general, especially men. And I just realized our life had spun out of control. So it's interesting. I don't think that you're alone. As a woman, we take so much, and even as a young woman and a young girl, we we suck so much in and take it on ourselves and feel like you have to march on. But suddenly yeah. it seems like when your kids were involved, 
now you felt a different need to take action and to stand up, if not for yourself, because you went back to work very quickly and you're shrugging things off and you're saying, no, I'm okay. But it's mm-hmm. you suddenly were stepping in to be a mama bear and still not taking care of yourself. For, you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. And I didn't take a single day off. I went, so this happened on a um, Friday night. No, a Saturday night. Sunday I did stay home. But Monday I went to school and taught three classes with a black eye and a broken nose and a slight concussion, which I didn't realize I had one until a few days later when I was slurring my words at a, a meeting with the president of the university. And uh, my, my colleague said, you've got to get into the hospital. Um, so I wasn't paying attention to myself at all, but I was paying attention to the kids, and they were really struggling. So It took me a long time to look at myself. You know, were you, you know, call it, were you embarrassed? I mean, that you felt like you had to, to power on. I read a stat that 63% of sexual assaults go unreported. Now, this was a mugging. It wasn't a sexual assault, but your previous ones were. But, you know, is there, I know that shame is a big aspect and element of these kinds of assaults. Did you feel like, you know, you were so embarrassed about it that you had to soldier on? I felt shame, but I wasn't sure why. So I, I just felt, oh, I'm I'm strong. You know, I'm a strong woman. I can just go on. This doesn't, this, this isn't going to affect me. But look at my kids. They're falling apart. Right. And pretty soon I realized I was too. The thing is, it, it took a while, but I finally got to a point where I was with a, a, fr- a really dear friend of mine. We were reading each other's work. And she was reading the first piece I had ever written, which isn't even in the book, and it was a letter to the attacker. And I was saying, I wonder how my daughter felt when, uh, when, when I didn't look at her after the attack. I was bleeding. I didn't want her to get uh, or become afraid, and so I didn't look at her. And I, I said at this, that point, I wonder if she was ashamed. I wonder if she thought I was embarrassed. You know, all of these words involving shame. And my friend said, little girls don't feel that way. You know, maybe you feel that way. And all of these bells and whistles went off. Right. And I finally told her what had happened when I was a kid and a teenager, or, or actually not a teenager, but a young adult, about the molestation and the rape. And she said, oh, my gosh, I can't believe that this has this has been here the whole time and we didn't even realize it. And, and in big letters I had this is not my fault. And it's the only place in the book where I had that. So I reread my whole book. And at that point, I realized that there was this ashamed little girl who was trying to get her voice out there. And I wouldn't let her, you know, I I was adamant about moving on. And I I hadn't even realized how much I was hurting and, and how much I had stifled my own truth, because I ignored such a very big event in my life or two very big events right now so when you were a child and you were molested you didn't say anything to anybody you knew something was wrong but you had no idea where you could go that's totally understandable how about with the rape in college did you report that no and why not I don't well when I was when I was at this party with this guy I had I had kissed him and as a reason, and I mean, that doesn't, that does not mean that he had a right to rape me. But I, I eventually, you know, he eventually took me to this, this dark place and, and raped me, even though I was saying no. And I was so ashamed of, of being, having been raped. And, and also the thing was, when I, when he was trying to rape me, all I could think of was the molestation and it just froze me in place. And for anyone who has experienced violence, sometimes there's a, a reaction that when you feel similar things come up, you just freeze. And, and that's what happened to me. And, and I, I think emotionally I was frozen too. I didn't, I, I didn't want to look at it. I felt I, I was too uncomfortable complaining or even asserting my rights. I didn't even think I had rights to begin with. And I also think I had, I had spent years being afraid of how people would react to the molestation. 
spent years feeling as though people wouldn't believe me, that my family wouldn't love me anymore. That So all of these things came into play. If the two things are attacked, attached, you know, the, the molestation and the rape, right. then I'm not talk about either one. I think there's a kind of a psychological effect that happened where it just silenced me and froze me even more. Yeah, no, you, so said, I, I, you said you didn't think you had a right to say anything. Was that as a woman or was that was there something in your family you know again people confront this all the time and I just want you know trying to help people get present and aware and watch within themselves what influences are going through their thought processes and their heart so if you can reflect back where was it that you thought you didn't have the right to say it like was it that nobody sure. you know, the DNA of your family that did it or the DNA of your culture or of just Nobody in America spoke up. It was before the Me Too movement. It was a lot of things. It was a lot of things. So my grandmother was married to an alcoholic, and he was somewhat abusive to her. My mother was the daughter of an alcoholic. And and I do think when you have such difficult things in your family, especially alcoholism, that both of them felt pretty silenced. And and I do think that we pass trauma on to our children. So probably that, that idea of not talking about your trauma was passed on to me. It was also a time in the world where people were, would not air their dirty laundry. Like the worst thing you could do was air your dirty laundry. Talk about uh, trauma because that meant something was wrong with your family. Now, that's not the case. And in fact, one thing that I've learned is that strength is not hiding your reality. Strength is confronting it. Right. And strength is talking about it. You know, that that actually was, I was misinformed when I thought strength was not talking about my struggles. I feel as though a huge amount of strength lies in the fact that uh, we can talk about our struggles and connect, you know, and, and say, Everybody experiences struggle. Everyone experiences trauma. We're, we're so much more similar than we imagined. But there was shame involved. There was, there was a, an overall shame about things that had happened in my, my family. Um, and, and it wasn't the immediate family, but just in general. But these, I, I knew early on that we weren't supposed to talk about these things. It was just the DNA of my family. But I also think it was the DNA of the time that people didn't talk about their problems. So I had that ingrained into me, and I really felt strong if I could listen to other people's families uh, or listen to other people's problems but not talk about mine. That, for me, defined strength. And it wasn't until later when I discovered the exact opposite was true for me. So now... You've had, I'll call it, you were 0 for 3 in terms of being able to confront your attackers. So now as a strong woman, if you had to do it again, what would you say to them? What would you say to the mugger? You never, you never, he never got arrested. He never got found. So if you could confront him, like, what would you say? What would you say to the rapist who also was right. not charged? Well, when uh, the person who attacked me in the parking lot, when I wrote the letter at the beginning of the book that I didn't publish, I really wanted to sit down and talk with him and the reason was I felt if somebody can can attack a woman in front of her three and five year old children things must be really really rough you know that I wanted to find out why he did it and talk with him and I felt compassion for him I just felt as though he's got things going on in his life that I don't understand and it was a real wake-up call for me because I don't know I, I came from I came from a town that was mostly Italian-American. Uh, we didn't have a lot of diversity in my town. And I didn't understand the world very well. And so for me, it was a wake-up call. Uh, first of all, people were... Um, I, I saw that people were afraid of African-American men, and I just happened to be attacked by one. And, and also... Um, my son was hiding behind my legs every every time he saw an African-American man. Um, I wanted to understand better why this was happening and also what what we could do about it. And so I really wanted to sit down and, and talk with him and figure out, like, what, was his, what were his experiences like in the world. Uh, with the rapist, 
I don't know. I didn't know this man. He means nothing to me. And and so I was also pretty young and it was it was really just kind of it felt like a redo of the molestation in some respects. He he's kind of faceless for me. I don't know what I would say to him because for me the real trauma happened when I was 8 or 9. If I could talk to the person who molested me, I think I would try to understand that too and say that he had he had been both good and bad for my family. He had done a, a lot of wonderful things for us. And then he had done this one horrible thing. And, and I'd want him to know that this thing has haunted me since it happened. And a, not a day goes by when I don't think about it. When I, For some reason, every day this event comes into my brain, even though I feel pretty healed by it. It, and I talked to a friend about this recently, and she said the same thing happens to her. She had been raped, and that there's not a day that goes by uh, when she doesn't think about it. She, actually, she had been raped and molested, and uh, and it comes into her brain pretty often, daily. So I don't know if that's an experience that most survivors feel. But I would, I'd want him to know that it, it did affect my life. I would want him to know that um, I've lost a lot of family members as a result of this, this one event that a lot of family members don't believe me and that that's painful. Well, I can't imagine. And also, Go ahead. Uh, Go ahead, finish. Oh, and, and I'd also want him to know that I, I, I don't feel as though he's a monster nor a saint. You know, I, I feel as though family often paints him out to be a saint. You know, he's larger than life. And... Our society wants to label him a monster for what he's done. Molestation is something that our society um, gives a monstrous, uh, I don't know, connotation to, I guess. And I feel as though that's dangerous for everybody to either classify somebody as a, a saint or a monster because as a result, we can't talk about it. And for me as a survivor, I've always needed to talk about it even though I didn't. But there was no place in society for me to do that. And I feel as though when you love somebody and they molest you, that that it becomes very hard for a family to talk about that experience because we have a saint monster paradigm that needs to be shifted. Well, I can't imagine the sense of betrayal and the lack of trust in your world, how that would blow your world away when you've got somebody, be it you know, this was a, a family member, a well-respected family member, or if you had a well-respected boss or somebody that you knew who, uh, I'll call it sainted, but it's not, but they're highly respected. There's someone you trust. And all of the sudden, if you can't trust that basic foundation, then who can you trust in the world? But that had to just blow your world apart. I believe it did, but not in the way you might imagine. I love and I've, I've loved people ever since I was young. I just, I love, I used to love sitting in my grandmother's lap and uh, just listen to, listening to conversations around me. I love connection. So I've really been trusting people, strangely enough. But what I don't trust is um, trauma in, in, in any such way. For, for example... My dad always makes fun of me because I'm paranoid about chicken. I want the chicken to be cooked well enough, and if he takes it off the grill uh, too early, I get all nervous. I'm like, can you please put it back on so that my chicken will be cooked well enough? And his fire alarm in the in the house wasn't working, and I made him go. Well, actually, I went out and bought batteries, and I said, you have to have batteries. And, He's saying, well, what's the chance of our house catching on fire? You know, <laughs> like my dad, my, my, my parents would leave the door unlocked because we're from a small town. And I would lock the door and he said, that's crazy. Why would you, you know, why are you so paranoid about somebody coming into our house? But, you know, the chance of being raped, molested or attacked are, for me, 100%. You know, like I, all of these things have happened. So for me, salmonella, a fire somebody breaking into the house that is that's just as, as possible and so I also my mom would be spraying some ammonia based or bleach based thing on the counter and I'd take three steps back I'd be afraid that I was going to get cancer so you know those are the ways I think I have not trusted the world 
for me, I'm just a real people person. I love people. And so I, I it's been very hard for me not to trust people. But, but I feel like it comes out in different ways, ways that have surprised even me. Yeah, that's interesting. So let me go back for one second. If you were attacked again or raped again, would you respond differently? Would you fight back in a way? I know that oh, after I, the mugging, you went and took a self-defense class with your kids. Yes. I took, I took Aikido with my daughter and my son. I had him do um, karate. And we did that for a number of years because I, I wanted to, to be able to respond and I wanted my kids to have tools to respond if somebody ever attacked them. But if I were ever raped or attacked, immediately I would tell people, I would contact the police, I would go into the hospital, I would do whatever I needed to do. But would you, after, would you even have fought back with the attacker? Like, would you have either fought back with the rapist, although there you were alone in the woods or wherever it was he'd taken you to, with the mugger you were in a parking lot, but would you have fought back or would you simply have handed him your purse? Right, although, I mean, it was a little cold clock, you didn't realize he was going to smack you. But... Like, right. would you have, in I that moment, have responded differently? with the attacker. The, the attacker, I actually did start to fight back. Yes. Um, like, take him off or, you know, I was trying to protect my kids. But with the, hopefully with the rapist, I, I would fight back now. I don't feel frozen anymore. And I would definitely tell the police immediately. That that goes without question. Right. And, and I, I would want that person, whoever it may be, even if it were somebody I love, to, to, be, to suffer the consequences of their actions. So let's jump to now, again, the first two you didn't deal with, you didn't deal with, and now you're finally healing yourself. So what were the steps after the mugging that you took to heal? Um, you know, said so you ended up taking six months off, but you know, types of therapy, family therapies that affected your family. So what kind of things did you do to get yourself to this place of strength? We, we went to family therapy, all four of us, and we did a lot of family therapy. My kids each went to therapy on their own. I went to therapy on my own. I, and, and this was for years, my children have both have moments where they became super depressed. And um, so we found uh, outpatient situations for them so that they could gain the tools to overcome their anxiety and depression. I recently went, this was a couple years ago, I just felt, even though I had been healing, I felt there was something left over that I couldn't quite identify, but was still making me doubt myself and feel I guess making me not have a very high self-esteem. So I found a specialist in trauma, and I went to her. And she did, uh, she, she talked to me about, she asked me all about my experience. And at the end, she said, you know, you've analyzed this. You've analyzed this for years, but you've never actually felt it. And so she worked with me to help me feel the trauma itself, to actually cry about it to actually feel the pain of having been betrayed, you know, rather than just intellectualize it, which I was very good at doing. How did this affect me? Oh, it affect me, affected me in this way. But after I felt it, and after I realized finally that all of my relatives knew about it, even though they were rejecting me for it, some of them, uh, this peace set over me, and I really started feeling good about myself and that was actually this part of it was recent this was less than a year ago when I finally felt peace because I had been trying to tell some relatives but they didn't really want to know about it uh, and and when I finally learned from my parents that they knew a, a, a sense of peace washed over me and it hasn't left so it's interesting so you went through that after you wrote the book yeah so when I started realizing that family were not on board with it, uh, my immediate family has always been on board with the book. Now the thing that the thing that's interesting to me, if I can if I can make a comment from the peanut gallery, your book was wonderful, sure. but it was interesting to me because you were you told the stories, but you did not delve into the deep pain of your heart. So, and I'm reading it going, but how'd you feel? But weren't you mad? But how come you're not crying? How come you went back to work so fast? And you're exactly telling me now why. Because that yeah. aspect of it took 
a far greater time for you to finally let go of and to open up. Exactly. There was one day I was outside with my husband drinking a glass of wine, and I started telling him stories about the man in my book, the, the man who had molested me. And they were these beautiful stories of when we were young. And when I was young and the funny things he had done, and as I told him, you know, tears were rolling down my face. And, and that was the moment when I realized how betrayed I actually felt and how confused this actually was, or confusing this actually yeah. was. So what was the impact on your marriage through all of this? Ultimately, I think it was good for us, but initially it felt awful. My husband, he felt as though he wasn't there. He couldn't, you know, he, he wasn't present during the, the attack, so he couldn't help us. And uh, he, felt, he felt quite helpless because my kids and I had experienced it, and we were super close after that. And I think he had he wasn't there, so he didn't understand exactly what we were feeling. And he tried to be there for us. But we were the three of us were this unit. And I wanted different things for my husband. Because before that we had often joked with each other about our faults and we would kind of I don't know, somewhat put each other down in a joking way. Uh, for the things that drove us crazy, but I realized I didn't, I didn't want that anymore. I didn't want to be put down. I, was, I started feeling uh, this sense of agency, and I said, I don't want to do this anymore. But it was kind of a flirtation, you know, but at the same time, it wasn't healthy. It didn't make me feel good. And so that had to change in our relationship, and it did eventually, but it took a long time. And so there were a lot of things that... When when you experience violence, or when because I experienced violence, I put up with a lot in general in my life. And when I finally gained gained agency in my life, I was less willing to put up with stuff. And so that changed my husband and my relationship completely. But I really think it's a much stronger and better relationship now. It took us a while to get here. And what did the therapist help you through that? Because I can imagine you, you you just changed all the rules of how you wanted to be treated, what you needed of him as a protector, right? Even though he wasn't there to start, and then his own guilt at not being there and him needing to work through his own issues, that it's not just the attacked, you know, the victim, but it's also the spouse or the family that that needs to help support and adjust and everything else. That's interesting that you said protector, because I think he was my protector before that. He knew what I had been through. But afterwards, I wanted to be my own protector. Yeah. And I think that was hard for him, because he he wanted to protect us. It was, it was really difficult to, as a protector, to see the person that you're protecting gain her own footing, become her own person, and no, no longer need that protection. I wanted to be on equal footing with him. Right. And I am now. Uh, and, and the other thing that, that this whole experience did for my kids and for me, the way I interacted with them changed. And so there are a few things that changed. Before this happened, I was protecting my kids like crazy. I didn't want them to know that people could hurt them, and I didn't want them to be hurt. But a few days before the attack, we had watched this video on Stranger Danger, and I had been conflicted about showing it to them because I didn't want them to know that people could hurt them. We watched it, and then a few days later, I was attacked in front of them, and then my son, the three-year-old, said, Mom, he was a don't know, meaning, you know, he was somebody I, that we don't know. And I realized he had the language to talk about it, and so did my daughter, and my whole parenting strategy changed. I said, I'm not going to protect my kids in the, the traditional way or the way that I thought I needed to. Protecting them means giving them the language to talk about things. And ever since then, we've talked about everything. I, I mean, in a way, you wouldn't believe the conversations we have uh, now. And they are 15 and 17 now. And sometimes I'm in the middle of a, a conversation with them, and I can't believe we're actually having a conversation on the topic where we're having it on because... We, we go deep, and, uh, and, and it's beautiful. I'm so happy my kids can come to me with things, but this was the result of, of my realizing that 
that they needed language to talk about difficult things, and now they have it. And as they were growing up, if they asked me a question, I would say no question is off limits, but I'd give them a little bit of information at a time, and then I'd say, do you want to know more? And if they wanted to know more, I'd give them more. But if not, you know, sometimes they just want to know a little bit, and I didn't want to traumatize them by giving right. them too much information. At the same time, right after the attack, my son said to me, you're not strong. And, uh, and he wouldn't listen to me for a while. He, he stopped viewing me as an authority figure. And that took a while to, to, to regain my footing as far as that is concerned because he didn't, he didn't respect me anymore. And he started ki- hitting kids on the playground because he saw that this guy who had hit me, he had a lot of power. And we had to, we had to confront that. And did you bring Very the kids? Quickly. Did you bring the kids for therapy, individual therapy, and family therapy right away, or was it yeah. some period? So you knew right away that they needed to have support and learn pro- support for processing. Yeah. Well, you know, the interesting thing was I brought my son to school the next, you know, I guess Monday, right. and he was hitting kids immediately. He started hitting kids. So I saw that's a change in behavior. My daughter's crying. She's drawing pictures, disturbing pictures about. Uh, me bleeding all over the place. You know, all of these things happened pretty fast. My kids, my son started crawling into our bed, wouldn't sleep alone. So there were things, drastic things that happened in our family immediately. And I realized we all need help. So we started going to a family counselor. I got the kids a, an individual counselor and we hit the, the ground running. So it's interesting, you know, you said that you, you now, your family talks about everything. Had this not happened, in your family of origin, did people did people talk, like, did they talk openly? I know, you know, even now, my relationship with my kids, you know, in when I was growing up, people really didn't talk about stuff. They didn't share. Everything, as you said earlier, was kind of private. You didn't air your dirty laundry. Um, and all this forced you to shift. So had you not gone through this, like, were, your, would, were you and your husband as big a talker of each other? Did you talk things through in the same way beforehand, or did all this force this great, you know, silver lining of openness and communication that might not have been there otherwise. I think this changed my life in a positive way, strangely enough, because we didn't talk. My my husband and I joked a lot about the things that drove us crazy. When I was younger in my teens, my mom had postpartum depression and it lasted for a long time. And we we just switched roles, you know, We, we just, changed the way we were doing things, but we didn't talk about it at all. And as I said before, I I was, you know, bent on protecting my kids in every way possible. This has made us, this has made me someone who talks about everything. I talk about everything with my kids, my students, my parents, and my parents have changed. My parents now will talk about everything. They are so supportive and they're so there for me. I'm really proud of my parents because they have stepped up in ways that I would have never imagined because they too were part of that culture. I think had this not happened, I still would be stuck in a a place where I didn't talk about things. And it's made my life so much richer. For example, when I first started teaching Italian, I would teach Italian in class and then I'd go home to my kids and my husband and maybe, you know, I knew I was a survivor, but I didn't think much about it. Or, you know, if I thought about it, I would brush it off. I, I, um, it would come into my head and I would I'd just try to change the subject in my own mind. But now I talk about everything. So my students, when I walk into class, they're getting the whole me. They're not just getting a fragmented me. And... I'm in in every cell of my body rings with who I am at every moment. So when my students see me, they see everything about me. They know about my kids. They know I'm a survivor. They they know uh, that I can be clumsy and trip over things. You know, like whatever I was hiding from them before, whatever I was hiding from society before. Now I'm the whole person, and I'm proud of that person. And I love that person. So everything has changed. And I'm, I'm very much an advocate for other people who are struggling, whose voices aren't heard. My kids advocate for themselves all the time. The, the idea of being nice is not something that comes into our vocabulary. And that was something that uh, my mom always said, you know, be nice, 
I, I think it's more important to be authentic than to be, yeah. be nice. Well, it's, and so, it's so funny, even at the most basic level of communication, and I talk about this even in business all the time, where people are reticent to, to say something that'll make them uncomfortable, they don't want to have a difficult conversation, so they hold it back and don't say anything. Well, but by doing that, in the end, it all blows up in your face anyway. You know, yeah. the, if you hold it back and you don't communicate, down the road, the truth comes out. Down the road, you have to confront whatever awkward thing it was that you didn't want to talk about. So being free to, to, to talk fully and freely and to give of your full self is such an important lesson in all areas of your life, as you said, even in the classroom. I agree. And, and I find I always wanted to be a mentor to my students. I wanted them to come to me with problems or struggles. And when I was teaching Italian and that was it, I wasn't bringing my full self to the table. We would have a great time in class, but they would leave and it was, that was it. I wasn't having these rewarding relationships with my students that I do now. Now we go out for coffee. You know, we, we talk about everything in, in my class too. It's, I don't put limitations on what we can talk about. And as a result, my teaching life is so much richer. As long as they talk in Italian. I was joking. I said as long as they talk in Italian, you can talk about anything? Yes. I'm sorry. I didn't hear that. Yes, as long as they speak about it in Italian. You should hear their Italian. It's great. It is great. But they... um, Right. They can talk. They can come to me about everything. And, and it, I don't know. It makes such a difference when you feel as though you can go to the, the difficult places and have difficult conversations. Your conversations are more meaningful. And um, I feel closer to people now. I feel closer yes. to my community. Um, let's talk for a brief moment about the impact on your family, because this is not uncommon. I have a friend who's going through the exact same thing. When you spoke to your family about the molestation, some believed you and some didn't. And then it, they all took sides. So talk about that and what people need to know and understand and how they can work through that aspect of it. Because it, it happens in far too many families and in far too many places. Sure. So this is fairly new. Uh, the experience that I'm going through with family. And and this isn't my immediate family. My immediate family, they were very, very supportive from the the get-go. But I do have other family members who don't believe it. And and I do understand that, interestingly enough, because the man that did this was a lovable man, somebody everybody respected, somebody everyone valued, who had given a lot to the family. So... First of all, I, I think acknowledging that uh, people can do public good and private bad is always important, especially if you know that the person who's telling you something loved that person and that the family loves that person. So as a family member, acknowledging, okay, this is hard for me to believe because this person did so much good, but I also understand that people that do public good can do private bad. It might take me a long time to, uh, to accept this and understand it, but I'm going to try. I'm going to try. You know, and, and so just having a family member say that this is hard for them, but they're, they're going to try, for me, would, would, you know, it, I feel that would have done wonders. And, and I'm, in a, I'm a social justice warrior. I'm out here fighting for people's rights all the time, and I'm in an educational setting. So we always talk about what survivors need and the right way to advocate for survivors and to listen to them. And I've seen that a lot of family members have done the exact opposite. And, and I realize, as somebody who's been trained to be there for survivors, it's not often that people are trained to, to, to say the right thing and do the right thing. And that's another thing that people have to understand. If you're a survivor, people aren't going to say the right thing all the time because a lot of times they're working through things as well. A good portion of our population have been through something like this, but maybe they're in a different stage, they're in denial, um, they can't talk about it. And that's all okay. You know, everybody should be at the stage that they need to be at. However, for me as a survivor and for a lot of survivors, 
having people bear witness to the story and listen as though it's the only thing that they have to do that day is vital um, because survivors often feel as though people don't hear them and don't want to be want to hear them. And a lot of times when people challenge them and say that they're not telling the truth or whatever, that's a second traumatization because you know it, it feels awful to have been molested and uh, raped and attacked. And then on top of it, for people to say that couldn't have happened um, is 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 traumatic in itself. You feel like, I've been through enough already, can't you support me? Right. But a lot of times, family members are going through trauma as well when they learn about it. And they have to go through a process as well. So maybe if you're a family member and somebody tells you this, uh, it's important to bear witness to this story and just listen and not make any judgments. And then it's important to say, this is hard for me. I realize people can do public good and private bad. I'm going to need some time, but I love you, you know, because I know that a lot of survivors are afraid of losing the love of their loved, uh, you know, losing the love of their loved ones. Sure. And for for me, rejection was something that terrified me, it, it, and it bled into other aspects of my life because I just felt I had this information that could um, ruin a lot of my relationships. The, and, uh, and allowing survivors to be at the stage that they need to be at, you know, not trying to rush things, because it takes sometimes a lifetime to accept what happened and move forward. That's another thing family members could do, is just allowing people, saying, I'm here for you when you're ready to talk. I don't want to push you into anything, but I'm here for you. Those are some things that people can do. And one, one last question. So in terms of communicating to the family, did you call a family meeting? Did you write a letter to everybody so that they'd all find out at the same time? Because it's sometimes hard to get everybody in a room. Like, how did you? How do you communicate it? Uh, it's it's messy, and I did it one by one, and it was a, it was not a linear process. And some people didn't want to hear it, so they said, "I can't hear anymore," and so I I didn't push it. But I I started by saying I was molested. And then I left it at that, and I figured people can ask me if they want to know more. It took years before people were ready to know more. And so, you know, it was, and and I didn't say I was molested right away. I, you know, I started with the attack. I was attacked in the parking lot. That led me to say I've experienced other violence, and and that was the next step, telling people I had experienced other violence. Then I was molested and raped. If you want to know the details, maybe I'll, you know, I, I just ask. But no, people didn't want to know. So I finally, recently, people started saying, was it this person? People, said, But I really gave my family a lot of latitude as far as when they were ready, they could come to me. I said, this happened. I'm ready to talk about it. Whenever, But, but I wasn't initially ready to say who it was. And when I put molested into my book initially, I was terrified. I couldn't imagine my parents reading it, and I took it out of the book. But then I eventually put it back in. You know, so I think it takes a long time for survivors to be ready to talk about it. So family needs to give survivors the, the, the time that they need. But I also think it, uh, on the same, you know, by the same token, it takes family members a long time to be ready to hear it. So I broke it to them in stages, and I just made sure that I was available to talk if they wanted to talk. I was posting a lot on a, a Facebook page about my book, and I just invited family members to that book, to that page, let them digest the information little bit by little bit. I didn't, I never posted who the person was as far as the molestation or rape were concerned. I, in fact, the rape, I don't know who it was. So, uh, but I let, I let family come to me. I don't know if that was the right way to do it. I have some family members who are really upset that it's so public now. Um, because it's it's hard, you know. I'm being very public with something, and I'm ready to talk about it. But there are family members who absolutely aren't ready, and I understand that. They're they're suffering. Um, they're in pain. And, and it, it, so it's messy. All, all I have to say is it's messy. Yes. There's no right or wrong way to do it there's no right or wrong time to do it 
everybody does this in a different way. There are people I know who have experienced rape and molestation, and they can't tell their families, and that's okay. Wherever you are, I, I think it's important to know that wherever a survivor is, that's where he or she needs to be, and and we shouldn't push it. There, you know, for me, I spent a whole, I don't know, thirty something years just not talking about it, and that was neither right nor wrong. It was just where I needed to be at that time. Yeah, and I think that's important to to everybody heals in their time. Although, as we see, the results of getting it out and having the conversations freed you up. So as fearful as it is to address it, there seems to be great benefit on the backside when you're ready. Christine Restaino, yeah. thank you so much. You're a very brave person. Your book is wonderful, All the Silent Spaces. And thank you for sharing. Thank you, Sarah, for sharing with me. I. I so enjoy talking with you. I'm talking to Christine Restaino, author of All the Silent Spaces, about her road back to emotional and physical health following sexual and physical assaults. With one in five women and one in 71 men being raped and even more being molested, this is a difficult and painful subject, which most people are totally unequipped to confront, but Christine did. Addressing difficult situations and developing tools for action are at the root of Bottomline's actionable expert advice. Bottomline Personal is filled with information and advice from America's leading experts on not just emotional health and family trauma, but on all aspects of your life, including living a disease-free life, travel, health, insurance, retirement planning, smart tax strategies, and so much more. Bottomline Personal has been helping people lead more informed and vibrant lives for over 40 years with our actionable and double fact-checked advice. Subscribe today and get a free bonus book, Bottomline's Best Bets, full of some of the greatest tips from our experts of all time. Just go to bottomlineinc.com forward slash expert podcast. That's bottomlineinc.com forward slash expert podcast.